All right. Well, uh, welcome to our first uh, Litman class on a very um, grandiose, ambiguous sounding title, How to Read the Bible. Uh, I'll say more about why uh, I've named it that and the work we're going to be doing together. But first, let's be quiet. Let's calm our hearts and minds and I'll open us in prayer. Let's just be still. Lord, we thank you for the grace of being here this morning. We thank you for Ella and Raina watching our kids. We thank you for uh, surprise bonus biscottis. We thank you for um, the relative warmth in this room and for your scriptures. Help us uh, to meet with you and be with each other and bring uh, greater faith, hope, and love because of our time here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, so every class I'm gonna tell I'm gonna tell you what we're doing and then we'll do it. I don't I don't like being in classes where I don't know where we're going. Um, because it feels a bit um it it it's too like uh yeah, it can be disorienting. So today I'm gonna tell we're gonna talk about how this class came to be. Uh we're gonna talk about what this class isn't. And then we're going to talk about what it is, uh, just just to get our bearings for the next several weeks. Uh, first of all, we've typically had some kind of Sunday school class during Lent. For those of you who've been with us for a while, know that we've done topical classes on, um, you know, starting in 2020, really dealing with uh, a lot of uh, racial justice issues. And we've talked about um, the idea of mammon and money in scripture and how God relates to that. Um this class came to be because of the last year or so, we've been using, uh, we used Wilda Gaffney's Womenist Lectionary, which um, created some kairoses for people. Uh, because of how uh, Wilda Gaffney translated some verses and also because of how some of the proclamations went down, uh, I had a number of people come up to me and say, hey, I don't feel like I know how to read the Bible anymore which can feel really disorienting and frustrating. Um, and I took that as a, as a cue that maybe we should talk about that, right? Maybe we should devote some time to talking about how to read the Bible. Um, so this class comes from essentially, I think listening to the uh, things and needs that are coming on in our community and how do we address those? So that's why we're doing this class. The second thing is, as I began to conceive of this class, it felt so intimidating to me because the Bible is a collection of um, dozens of books written over a thousand years, at least. And there are all kinds of uh, literary types, genres, stuff like that. They're all doing different work. People disagree about the work they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, it, would, it really is too ambitious to try to cover everything there is to say about how to read the Bible during Lent. So I just want to just give a cue to all of us that there will be things left unsaid, uh, plenty of fodder for follow-up classes and discussions. So then as I tried to figure out, well, what do we, how do I actually approach this in a way that's will feel like good work, um, but also isn't too ambitious or trying to do too much, right? So there's like a, a sweet spot there somewhere where we're doing some good work, but it's not too much work and we're not completely just overwhelmed and lost. Um, I was struck by, I'm reading a few books right now, and I'll name them in a bit here, that are dealing with the first few chapters of Romans, Romans 1 uh, through 3, and the books were like really blowing my mind, you know? Uh, they really were stretching me, and I realized how much in these chapters there was with various layers of things needed to read the Bible. So I was like, well, what if we just took... Uh, you know, almost three chapters of scripture and use that as our text that gives us questions, then we have to go use tools on how to read this text. So rather than starting from 20,000 feet and applying the tools, I thought, why don't we start in this uh, larger pericope, as they say in the business, and then work from that pericope to say, okay, what do we need 
What do we need to understand this better? Or this question presents itself, how do we go about answering that? So that's kind of how the class was designed. And so um, there'll be things even in Romans one through three that probably we won't be able to devote the time that some of us want to devote to it. It's just the nature of being together like this. Um, but that's how the class came to be. Okay, what then that's, so the class then isn't all the tools we could use or answering every question about this text. But essentially this class is, we're gonna take a look and, and momentarily we're gonna actually read this. So if, if you didn't grab uh, one of these, I printed out the translation. Carl has them if anybody needs them. I know you brought your Bible, you're welcome to use that too. Um, we're gonna read it together. And then we're going to, I'm gonna ask you as we read to pay attention to a few things, okay? So this is just, um, you can do this as much or as little as you want, but the rest of the class will be participative in this way. As we read it, I'm going to ask you to listen for a few things. One, listen for things you don't understand or questions you have. You know, you get to a word or a verse or a section, this whole thing, and you're just like, I don't get this, or I want to know more about this. That's the first thing I want you to listen to. Four. The second thing I want you to listen for is, this is what I've heard about this. So you may come to a section, right? So for instance, for me, um, Romans 3.23 is the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, that that was what how I was taught to, to share the gospel. So when I get to that, my comment will be, this was presented to me as the summary of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that would be something that, you know, if that was you, you could share that or something like that, okay? So the second thing is, Pay attention to things, to passages you know, or things you remember, things you've heard about the passage. And we're going to share that, and we're going to kind of uh, aggregate that together. And then at the end, I'm going to lay out the work we're doing for the next six to eight weeks. We'll figure this out. Figure out how many weeks we need. But six to eight weeks, maybe going after Easter, we'll uh, walk through... Uh, some large ideas that I've already pulled out that I think will be interesting to see how many of our things and questions we have are tethered to that. And if they aren't, and there's a collection of either questions or things we noticed that are tethered, then we'll have to, I'll have to change the class. Because, you know, <clears throat> no fun for you to just listen to me talk about things you're not interested in, right? Um, all right. Finally, I'll probably, I'll. You can ask a question anytime. So Isaiah's on Zoom, and I've, I've asked him to sort of uh, collate questions that come up on Zoom. So if you have a question on Zoom or you have a thought on Zoom, in particular, as we read this text, go ahead and type them in the chat, and then Isaiah will kind of be the spokesperson for that and help us kind of be the liaison between the Zoom people and us here. Um, but I'll probably do, and you can ask a question at any point. So like if something I'm saying isn't clear, just raise your hand and we can chat about it or interject. Um, but we'll probably do like a like 30 minutes or so of teaching uh, just because we don't really have those spaces in our church very often. So it hopefully won't be a lecture, but I do, there is some information to impart or transfer. And then 30 to 40 minutes of conversation based upon that and based upon other things. Any questions about why we're having the class, what it isn't, what it is, and how we'll do it? All right. All right. So here's what I here's what I'm going to suggest we do. Um, I picked intentionally picked a pretty large piece of scripture because we don't typically deal with large pieces of scripture. We typically deal with a word or a verse or maybe like 10 verses. Right. So I get that reading this through, you will probably zone out 433 times. We're just not used to reading this much scripture together out loud. That's fine. Just when you find yourself thinking about how many biscotti are left and how often, how much time you have over there to grab one, then just go get it and come back, and we'll do that. Um, I'm going to start us out reading, and I'm going to read. I'm, I'm going to read from this piece of paper, and I'm going to read down to verse 32. I'm going to read. I'm going to read all of chapter one. Can I get a volunteer to read um, half of chapter two? Nice and loud, Lee. 
chapter 2, and then Isaiah, uh, Lee, you'll read uh, through verse 16 of chapter 2. And then Isaiah, will you pick up there the Jews and the law and read through the end of chapter 2? All right. And then can I get a volunteer to read half of chapter 3? Yes, Mary Ellen, thank you. Mary Ellen, if you would read from chapter 3 there on page 3 all the way to the last page through verse 20. See that? Yeah. Right above the righteous through faith, righteousness through faith. And then can I get someone to read those last few verses on the on the back side? Tim, great. All right, let's read nice and loud because we do have people online. Online people, if you can't hear, um, just uh, recite it in your head from memory. <laughs> All right, here we go. This is... Uh, this is Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and I'm. this is the NRSV version, if you're curious about which version it is. All right. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's sake. Okay, remember, you're listening for things you have questions about or uh, things you notice, or this prompts me to tell the story about how I was taught to share the gospel back then. All right, here we go. Uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's saving power for everyone who believes it, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and injustice of those who by their injustice suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been seen and understood through the things God has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. <laughs> for this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Their females exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also the males giving up natural intercourse with females were consumed with their passionate desires for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind and to do things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of injustice, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. <laughs> they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Therefore you are without excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others, or in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You know that God does not know that you do such things in accordance with truth. You imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and that you do that yourself, you will escape the judgment of God, or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your heart and independent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, and God's righteous judgment that you will yield. You will repay according to each one's needs. To those who, by patient and doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. While for those who are self-seeking and obey not the truth but injustice, there will be wrath and fury. There will be affliction and distress for everyone who does evil, both for the Jew first and his Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, both for the Jew first and the Greek. For God shows no partiality. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged in accordance with the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. 
when the Gentiles do not possess the law, by nature do what the law requires. These, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, as their own conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God through Christ Jesus judges the secret thoughts of all. Uh, but if you call yourself a Jew, rely on the law, and boast of your relation to God, and know his will, and determine what really matters because you are instructed in the law. And if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are darkness, corrector of the foolish, teacher of children, having the law in the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, will you not teach yourself? You preach against stealing, do you steal? You forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast of the law, do you dishonor God by your transgression of the law? For it is as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of <laughs> Circumcision indeed is of value to obey the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised to keep the requirements of the law, will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then the physically uncircumcised person who keeps the law will judge you, though having the written code of circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something external or physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one outwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not the written code. Such a person receives praise, not humans, but from God. And what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in the day. For in the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Although every human is a liar, let God be true as true, as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words, and you will prevail when you go to trial. But if our unjustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what should we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could, how could God judge the world? But if through my falsehood God's truthfulness abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as some people slander us by saying that we say, let us do evil so that good may come. Their judgment is deserved. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. But we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of prison. As it is written, there is no one who is right, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and mercy are in their paths. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God who ever had. Now we know that the law said to speak to those who are in the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human will be justified before him by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from it, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God and the faith of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have fall, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice and atonement by His blood, effective through faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to demonstrate at the present time his own righteousness, so that he is righteous and he justifies the one who has the faith of Jesus. And what becomes a boast? 
it is excluded. Through what kind of law? That of works? No, rather through the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is, the, is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then overthrow the law through this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The word of the Lord. Whew. All right. Kind of hits different when you read it all together, you know, even if you do space out four or five dozen times. Yeah. All right. Here's what I'd like to do now. I'd like to just gather. And those of you listening on Zoom, if you want to type it in the chat, uh, Isaiah, you can gather a few and then and then share. Go ahead and type in the chat. Isaiah will share. But I'm curious. Um, and you can either do questions or things that you heard that prompted a remembrance of something that uh, you've heard in the past. So who wants to share? Great, Josie. I grew up um, as a missionary kid, and the part that God has made plain to every situation was something taught as a little kid that no matter where you're going in the world, like I have, he just had to reveal himself to someone in that people group. And so you were like trying to find like the person in the child. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so. It wasn't a general uh, making it plain. It was more like there's somebody here who knows about Jesus. Yeah, like someone, like someone knows and we're coming to like yeah. figure out how citizens of the world. Yeah. Or like there's still no, there's no excuse that no one knows about Jesus. These people serve Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to find the, I got to find the Jesus key and, and that everybody here uh, doesn't have an excuse about not saying yes to our message because Romans 1, 18 through 31 says they're without excuse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hey, Mark, we may be out of these papers, but we're in uh, Romans 1 and 2 and 3, if you need it. Yeah. She talked about the verse. This is that of my dad, favorite verse, which quotes me a lot. And uh, it was... I got more like the general revelation thing that you're talking about and no excuse. And it was also upheld in my household as like the basis of natural law. Yeah. Um, like we can know things about God and, you know, build a philosophy off of nature because God's in nature. Yeah. So natural, it's called, it's called natural law or general revelation. And and the uh it also means that yeah. I just you know in that context. Yeah, I mean that's the convenient part of just taking Romans one without Romans two <laughs> is that you can use it to condemn other people. <laughs> no, so there and there's also what I'm hearing um you say is that it's not just oh great, look at this creation and tell it all heavens declare the glory of God, but it's more of like so you all are culpable when you and without excuse is like the language i'm just going to write without excuse here um i'm going to put it kind of under this right so without excuse yeah great um if you just want to start talking just start talking yeah yeah oh. okay go ahead roxanne um I felt God calling us, uh, me to be a missionary. Um, it was a book that was named Eternity in Their Hearts. And it was coming at the same verses, but from point of more anthropology, that somewhere in their traditions or in their culture, in their history of, you know, pulling it forth generation by generation. Um, there's something there that they were going to recognize when they heard the rest. Sure. Sure. And so that brought me to feel like I didn't go. So, but, sorry. Yeah. 
There wasn't so much about whether they had taken that as much as that. Yeah, let's finish it for you. Yeah, that's kind of the more we could say like uh, positive side of that, right? Rather than using natural law revelation to condemn, it was using natural law revelation to say, here's our starting point. Yeah, which is kind of what Paul does in Acts 17, right? When he looks around at the Areopagus and says, I see you have a statue to an unknown God. Um, let me tell you about that unknown God. Yeah. And that's kind of how it was used in your missionary experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Paula and then Katie. Katie, did you have your hand raised too? Oh, I was going to say, um, I'm in the talk that, uh, that John Lewis was kind of like the history, you know, that that's how people who go to Christ, everybody, have a new God and pressure. Yeah, okay. So Romans 1 is kind of like a quick flyover of human history. Yeah, and describes all the, yeah. Um, is it this? Uh, this may be a good place. To, uh, guys, you guys heard me giggle when I was reading all the awful things. Um, the reason I giggled is because um, the foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless reminded me of Chevy Chase in Christmas Vacation when he's cursing out his boss. I think he says heartless, gutless, ruthless. I think he like goes on this rant, and I uh, was channeling my inner Chevy. Yeah, Lee. So I was very Catholic, so all the scripture is very new to me. Um, mm -hmm. I have sort of the, the sort of the scriptural baggage um, that some other folks in the room might. Um, but I'm thinking about a lot of the the anti-Semitism that unfortunately has uh, been prompting up recently, starting in chapter three. And I think a lot of other places throughout all the prophets as well. You know, there's a sort of othering the Jewish community because they killed Jesus, right? Yep. And so this then is really jumping out for me as that. You know, it says, at least parts of it, Jews and Gentiles are the same, they're God, but I think you can focus in on this verse and kind of say, aha, Jews here are the ones that need to sort other edge. Yeah. This may be, uh, do you guys all hear that? Lee's, Lee's noticing uh, that he's, this is this text is newer to him. He wasn't a missionary kid or a missionary. Um, but he recognizes some of the language in here has been used in anti-Semitic ways. Um, and, and I'm not going to do this for every comment. Um, like I could have done it for natural revelation, but I will do it for this comment. Um, and that is uh, Paul, Paul, um, Paul seems to critique the voice of Romans 1, 18 through 32, right? Um, therefore, whoever you are, you're without excuse when you judge others because you do the same thing, right? So, so he's setting up this, the wrath of God is being revealed against all these awful people. And then Paul seems to criticize that. Yeah, seems to criticize that. And the question is, who is he criticizing? And to Lee's point, in the history of interpretation the predominant majority of both Catholic and Protestant scholars have taken Romans 1, 18 through 32 as the Jews. That's how the Jews think about it. And there's at least two problems with that. One is Paul is a Jew. 100%. I'm sorry if not, no one's ever told you this. Paul is a Jew. He's a Jew um, that believes in the Messiah, Jesus. And Paul doesn't seem to believe in Romans 1, 18 through 32. So we got a problem here. Paul is, summer, if Paul's summarizing Judaism, then Paul seems to be criticizing the view he should hold. The second larger problem, because I think you could say, well, Paul's a Christian now, so of course he rejects what most Jews believe. The second larger problem is that when you read through Jewish literature in the second temple period, which is the time between like Ezekiel and Jesus, or if you read it in the century or so after Jesus, this isn't what Jews believed. It's not a great summary of what Jews believe. In fact, you can find some Jews who believe this, but they had a real, real diversity of belief and and 
this isn't a fair summary of the Jews. So we have three problems. Paul's criticizing himself. Two, it's not really an accurate summary of the Jews. And three, the Holocaust. You know, plus everything else. <laughs> but the Holocaust is kind of this, you know, capstone of anti-Semitism. So this is something we're going to talk about. How this text has been used in anti-Semitic ways. Who is Paul talking about here? And, you know, how do we become a little less anti-Semitic along the way? It's one of the reasons why I picked this text. Yeah. So I could, I could teach on that for six hours, but that's just a quick summary of the problem. And then a, a provoking of maybe you should come back and be here next week too. And then we go. Thanks, Lee. Don and then Marissa. 26, 27, then also by extension 24, and 32 being applied, and then 5 verse 20. Yeah, yeah. So this text, in particular 26, 27, but then uh, 26 and 27 are, those people are described in 20, you know, 8 through 32. Uh, this text is frequently, I mean, it's one of the, it's, it's one, it's the, it's the place where, where Paul talks the most about gay people. And it has been uh, used in particular, and it's hard to read this the way it's written and not agree with that, that there is an unnatural, passionate, giving up shameful penalties, idolatry, et cetera, against LGBTQ people. So we'll look at that as well. We'll look at that as well. But just for today, without going into what words mean and context and backgrounds, there all we already need to acknowledge that whatever. So, so here's something that maybe I could just offer now. Paul is critiquing 118 through 32 later, which means he doesn't agree with it all. But it also doesn't mean he dismisses it all. So it's so we can't just say it's all bad or it's all good. That's sort of those are those are two options that I think are sub. Uh, they just aren't helpful. So that already gives us some kind of like, well, then let's figure out what does Paul agree with in here and what doesn't he? And what is Paul actually saying in here? Right? Those are questions we'll have to answer. But do you get that? Like he's just not agreeing with all of this because he critiques it in the next chapter. And why is he saying it? Yeah, why why does there there's something I notice because I've been studying this for months, but I just want to point out, there's like this, the reason I included verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the righteousness of a God-saving power for everyone who believes, right? The righteous will live from faith, by faith, the righteous one will live by faith, for the wrath of God is revealed. There's like a tone shift that people see there, like a tone shift. We're talking about faith and righteousness, and then there's the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Some people see it. Yeah, a lot of people do. I, I see it as a token. Yeah. If you see the wrath of God as That's another thing. So this text, like we'll talk about this one week. What is the gospel? What is Paul's gospel? He seems to he seems to uh he ends sort of the greetings of the letter with verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the righteousness of God has been revealed. And I think we're gonna talk through what what is Paul's gospel. And Isaiah's right. There is, there is a way of taking 16 and 17 and melding it with 18 through 32 to mash it up. And that's usually what's described as like the Reformation gospel, the gospel of like Luther, Martin Luther and John Calvin, things like that. Too bad Lee's not here. He could learn all about Martin Luther. Um, um, but if Paul is critiquing 118 through 32, then should we mash it up? And what do we mash up? So these are questions we have to ask, right? And we'll we'll explore those. Yeah. You, you mentioned the critique. Can you just be a little more explicit about where you see that? Yeah. Yeah. So we're gonna have, I'm gonna talk a little bit about 
uh, a rhetorical device known as speech and character, which is um, we see in the writings of Philo and other ancient uh, oration handbooks talk about what looks, Paul looks like he's having a dialogue here, right? But what about this? Well, we think of this. And uh, you, whoever you are, and then at one point, the RSV translates it as, I'm speaking in a human way. Remember that? Um, increasingly, as we learn more about how ancient rhetoric worked, we're coming to see that there's signs and cues in this text that Paul is having a diatribe with somebody. Paul is dialoguing with not whoever you are, but with an idea, a person, maybe a group of people that have different ideas than he does. Now, as I share this in subsequent weeks, I want to be really clear. I, I should have started with this, but I remember back in seminary, I was in Chicago, a famous radio preacher in Chicago. I'm not going to say who, um, but he's no longer in ministry was starting a, a, a message on the book of Revelation. And it was like a year and a half long mess, uh, ser sermon series, right? As they do. And he started his first series with, I know a lot of people have said a lot of things about the book of Revelation, but I'm here to set you straight. So that you don't have to believe all the yada, 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 and you can know what the book says. I am not going to set you straight on the book of Romans. I'm not. I'm not. The way that scripture does theology is it does it, it does this. Like, like the way that Jews do theology is, hey, what about this? Well, that's interesting, but what about this? Oh, that's interesting. But what about this? And that's interesting. What about this? And that's interesting. So I may propose some things here, but you don't have to agree with me. In fact, some of the generative like theology that we see in our faith is done through wrestling in the in-between, you know? So what I'll, what I'll encourage us to do is, if this is right, what are the implications? If this is right, what about the rest of Revelation? And how do we fit it together? If this is right, what are the implications? And how do we fit the rest of the scriptures together? And as much as possible, holding that without any defiant, um, definitive categorical statements. I, I'm, that's that's not what I want to do for you. If you need my opinion because you feel unsettled, I'll give that to you. Does that make sense? So I'm trying to trying to like give some confidence in the scriptures without doing the yada 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 thing because that, that makes me want to bump. So uh, yeah, like there are cues in the text, Isaiah, that according to ancient rhetorical rules, indicate that Paul is doing a speech in character, prosopopeia, which means he's presenting an argument and then tearing it down through dialogue. Now, we'll get to, we'll get to that more in subsequent weeks. That's like a whole week or two. Yeah, Mark. Is this a continuation of like they have part of this dialogue back and forth at some point, and they're just like, I'm going to carry it in the letter and I'm going to send it in the Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, so Mark is saying, is this a is this a um, a continuation of a conversation? I think that's what's happening in 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians, Paul begins, has it has this dialogue back and forth in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. Let me just give an example of this, Mark, because it's a great question, and I want to differentiate what I think is happening in the book of Romans. Um, yeah, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but all things aren't profitable. And so a lot of interpreters, and he says things like, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Yeah, but, and then he'll say, he'll give a counter argument. Or um, uh, all of us possess knowledge, but not all of us are wise in, in chapter eight. And so a lot of interpreters again, according to the ancient rules of rhetoric, see Paul as naming things that either came to him in a letter or people are telling him that are being said in the community, and he's directly responding to those things. And we don't see it because ancient Greek doesn't have quotation marks. So there's no way, like, like we know there's dialogue because we see quotation marks and 
and separations of paragraphs. But in ancient, in ancient Greek, uh, they had to use cues, little cues that you had to learn. And we don't speak ancient Greek, so we miss it. Yeah, so most people think that, we'll talk about this next week, I'm gonna give a background of, the, of Rome. I'll share what I'm going to do next week more explicitly here in about 20 minutes. But part of the background of Rome is Paul's never been there. Paul's never been to Rome. He knows a few people there. And he's in Rome is really important to him. So he's he's got to figure out how to create street cred with people he's never met. And so uh, that may give us some insight to why uh, one way to read this is Paul starts off by getting into a dialogue or diatribe with something that he may think is an operation. Yeah. Other, yeah, other things you noticed. Yeah, Marissa. I, I think most of chapter two, I don't know if it's talking, probably more like I have read it from, um, was, I think I could very much for the like, Sinned. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so chapter two has been used kind of as this, you're pretty worthless. Thank God for God. <laughs> kind of thing. He, and he's really mad at you. Right. Yeah, let's not forget that. Yeah. I'll return to chapter two here in a minute because I noticed a couple things that um, I want to mention there. Yeah, it's broke. Oh, okay. Let's... Yeah. Yeah. So the, I mean, the whatever whatever is happening here in chapter one, they sound pretty awful. <laughs> I mean, they really sound bad, don't they? Um, they really sound bad. That list of that list of sin is is pretty it's pretty bad. Yeah. And so then you were taught like there's a clear demarcation between unrighteous and righteous and don't have anything to do with the unrighteous people. They listen to Yeah. And like even if they don't seem bad now, eventually they're gonna fall into like all of these things because they don't mess up. Yeah. Listen to Harry Styles. <laughs> I mean, we're talking the worst of the worst. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you, bro. <laughs> She's like, I listen to Harry Styles. Uh, I just, I don't think Harry Styles is um, haughty, boastful, and inventor of evil. I just was joking. <laughs> yeah, thank you, bro. Yeah, Alyssa. Theology, but um, I noticed that in 18 through 28, it's just using they or them describing like a set of people, but then in chapter two, it says therefore you. So I always was thought that it's like you might be feeling good because you don't, you're not God leader, mm -hmm. but now you're judging these other people, so you are the God. You're also in the of other people who should judge it. Right. So right. I actually found reading through this to be like kind of triggering for me. <laughs> like I have a lot of bad news in my pocket. So <laughs> but anyway, I just I wonder if you could say more about the sh the shift from they to like you. Yeah. Yeah. So let's notice that there's a uh, they. Um, pronouns at the end of chapter one, and there, and then it shifts to you in chapter two. Um, this is one of the clues 
that the person speaking in chapter one isn't the same person speaking in chapter two. It's one of the clues. It's not the only clue, but it's one of the things that indicates kind of a shift in focus. So chapter one is seems to be a group of people or a person talking about them. And then chapter two seems to be someone else talking about the person who was talking about them. Right? And and without without like understanding speech and character or how that works, I think the reform story about it makes sense, right? So Paul's laying a trap yeah. and then he sets the trap, catches him, right? Um, and I think that a lot of us have learned it that way. I, I don't agree with that. And I think part of what you're naming is um, there is, and we'll get into this too. What is this say? What what is the dominant like reform way of understanding this text say about God? Who is this God, and who are we? And you kind of reference this too, Marissa. Who are we in relation to this God? And then what kind of work does that do in our bodies? You know, yeah, which are important things to reckon with. So at any point, if you need to like you know take a walk around or do some Deep breathing, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Mary Ellen. In, um, in chapter three, um, talking about people that they effectively What verses are you in, Mary Ellen? Chapter three, verse 25. Back page. Yes. And now I'm learning that it's it's something completely different and I'm still grasping with what faith is. Right. Right. Good. So if faith isn't just doing what you're told or, or going to church or or doing the sacrament, and it's not just saying something or agreeing with something, then what is it? Because it seems important. Right? <laughs> it seems important. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the questions we'll talk about is, in that verse 25, right? Whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood effective through faith. We'll, we'll ask the question, whose faith? It, it's assumed that in the Reformed tradition that Paul is talking about our faith, Right? But the Greek there could mean the faithfulness of Jesus. Could mean Jesus's faith was the effective thing. And we'll talk about the implications of each and how, and how you know, and, and scholars disagree. So, you know, I have an opinion, but again, I'm, this, this isn't a legislation thing. It's more of like, let's explore the implications of that. But I think that gets at a little bit of your question. Yeah, Katie. seeing these verse 26, keep going. Uh, and I was smiling because my, my version says, let's see, it was decreed at the present time that he himself did rise and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. And then there's a, but, but the, the paper that, the version that you guys were reading in the paper said, of Jesus, and um, that completely changes it because it's Jesus' faith, it's his work. And so I do have a note to the bottom page, and then it says, For um, who has the faith of Jesus? So it, there's, mm -hmm. it's a really important, I mean, that of, uh, yeah. You know, Yes, it's really important, and that's um, an example of why Luke is 
an important thing to address what you want. Sure. Because it, 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 it it's a, and it can mean it can mean either. Context determines meaning. It can mean either putting the human faith in Jesus Christ or having or it's Jesus. having the same kind of faith that Jesus had. Or, or it can mean what Jesus did to demonstrate faithfulness. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it matters a bit. I mean, it, it changes things a little bit. Because on one hand, it's works. It's our work. And on the other hand, it's faithful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's one of the things that I like. Um, that's one of the things I think that gets lumped into the kind of the anti-Semitism is that there is, Jews are known for people who rely on words to save themselves, right? And Paul's critiquing that. The works of the law won't save you, uh, but faith in Christ will, or faith of Christ will, right? Um, and and I, want to, I, want us to re, I want us to relook at that. I want us to relook at that. I want to invite us to relook at that um, for a number of reasons. Um, but maybe I'll just mention this now as like a teaser. A friend, I'm going to be using a dissertation by a friend of mine uh, named Andrew Rolera, uh, who teaches in Canada. Uh, he teaches uh, New Testament in Canada at a college. And um, do you guys notice there's circumcision here? Circumcision is mentioned. Circumcision doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Circumcision of the heart. There, there are there are a few points in Paul's letters, Galatians, Philippians, and Romans, where he gets cranked up about works of the law and circumcision, right? Well, one of the interesting things that I'm just learning is that there were multiple kinds of circumcision in Paul's day. Did you know that? I did not know that. Did you know that Philo of Alexandria, kind of a big deal, held to a more severe form of circumcision. Now, this is a little PG-13. The, the dominant circumcision of Paul's day was a circumcision that took most of the foreskin away. Philo held to a very strict, severe circumcision that took the entire foreskin away. And followers of Philo taught that if you really wanted to restrain the passions of the flesh, you would submit yourself to this more rigorous, thorough, severe circumcision. Does that help us? As we read Paul's letters that talk about works of the law and circumcision and it being of worth or not at all, I want to say I think it's exciting and it, and it actually gives us access to something. Right. We'll talk more about that. And I, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to give the entire story away, but I'm just pointing out how like that's a that's a background, a historical background of things that are in the ether or in the air in Paul's day that may give us better access or or different access to what is Paul dealing with? What's he responding to? What's going on? Uh, and that's uh, hang on a second. Tim. And, and there's a correlation here. We're going to talk about this next week. But one of the things I was talking about Romans is this is Paul's systematic theology. This is Paul's tome. This is his magnum opus. This is where he lays it all down. I just don't think that's true. Paul's a pastor. And we're going to talk tomorrow or next week about why did Paul write the book, the letter to the Romans? He tells us in the letter, why did he write it? And then that gives us maybe a better understanding of um, Paul's doing timely pastoral theology for a purpose, not writing systematic theology for all time. And if we if we can't get a little bit at what's this purpose, what we'll do is we'll we'll take our you know theology whatever it is, and just import it onto here. This is what this is what works of the law means, or this is what circumcision is about. So we'll talk next week about what is the church in Rome? Why is Paul writing there? You know, um, who who carried the letter to the book to people in Rome, et cetera. All right, Tim. Uh, 
I don't know if he does this specifically in this chapter, but whenever Paul like quotes scripture, like I sometimes like it's not all the time, but sometimes I'll look back and it seems like he's quoting it out. <laughs> yeah, Paul seems to quote scriptures out of context. It's a famous uh, Ephesians 4 where he misquotes a psalm. And he'll do this frequently. Um, th this, is, this is something that I had, a, I had an Old Testament prof who taught me Hebrew in seminary. And um, his nickname was Mad Dog. Because um, he would he would uh, get really red faced in like you know one of those older gentlemen that spittle comes out of their mouth when they're getting excited. Um, I mean, maybe younger gentlemen do that too, but but he, he definitely wouldn't do that. He would shake. And and uh, he one of the things he would say all the time, Tim, is uh, scripture can't mean today. What it didn't mean then. And he would just go on and on about how um the scripture, the scripture has a meaning, and and you can't just take the scripture and do whatever you want with it. And, and I'm 24, and I remember feeling really guilty, uh, thinking like, man, somebody should have told Jesus that. <laughs> somebody should have told Paul that. Something that's different about how Jews do theology is they will riff. They'll just riff off of things. You know? In Matthew's Gospel, when he tells a story about Jesus fleeing to Egypt and then coming back as a little baby, he uses that verse, out of Egypt I've called my son. And I think I think the tendency is to read that, and I think it's Isaiah or Hosea, and say, well, that's just a prophecy. No. The prophet Hosea is talking about people coming out of exile. Right? And so I'm not saying it can't have two meanings. I think it does. But I also think we need to look and we need to watch how Jews do theology. And they will they will riff on things. They'll, they'll do like remixes of Old Testament scriptures to do work today. Uh, there today, right? And that's uncomfortable for us because we have really strict rules about how we, you know, like if I did that, you know, it would, I'd get some side eyes. Um, but I, I think it's hard when Paul changes words or changes reference to words. It's like, well, you know, we can, we, the move typically is, well, Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so he can do that. And I, yes, and all Jews did that. So he's not doing something unique to Paul. It's just how they did theology. He was a man of his times, right? He didn't like get caught up in the spirit and do Cornholio and spit out the book to the Philippians. You know, he wasn't like me. And then doing that to the Jewish scriptures. That's for anybody over the age of 40. That's for you. Uh, we have a time for a few more comments and then I want to lay out what we're doing the rest of the time. Anybody else want to share? Isaiah? Wait, you're up. Understanding the Romans like and systematic theology, but also uh, like the Romans wrote the salvation was inflicted on like what evangelism looks like. Yes. And it also informed the Romans had like view of atonement, mostly with substitution. Yes. Substitution. Yes. I mean, I'm interested in this discussion on the critique of Paul's self critique of chapter one, but verse 18, uh, I think it's reading that they put the wrath of God is against all ungodly and just people. But the particulars is that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and injustice. And then it's given possession of those two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rather than just people. So I grew up just like, all right, wrath is against everyone. Yeah. Rather than this wrath is against evil, which doesn't always have to correlate with another person or people. Yeah. Yeah, good. Isaiah's noticing that in, chap in chapter 1, verse 18, I'm just repeating for people on Zoom, that um, the wrath of God is not against um, in the, uh, the evildoers. The wrath of God is against ungodliness and justice of the evildoers, right? So the object of God's wrath is important in how we talk about how we talk about the gospel, right? What's the problem? Is it people or is it sin? 
miss really one way to like make it super uh, maybe too simplistic, right? Um, it's also interesting too, and we'll talk more about this later. But in 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 this verse eighteen and following, whoever's speaking here is really clear that God's wrath is being revealed. That God is like a, against these people. But then in chapter two, and in chapter three, um, in chapter two verse four, do you despise the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And then in chapter 3, verse 25, which is on the back page, whoever's speaking here talks about the atonement as a demonstration of his righteousness because his divine forbearance had passed over sins previously committed. So we have these two movements. We have God's wrath going against sin, and then God forbearing and there's kindness, right? So how do these things fit together? Do we mash them up? Are they two different presentations of how God behaves? Something we'll talk about. All right. For the sake of time, because um, there's other things happening this morning. I did get two things written down on the board. I think we should sell them. <laughs> All right, so this was this was kind of like just an old, like a flyover, so we could all just be reminded of this text, see what comes up for us, etc. Uh, next week, so I'm just writing this up here, so you can kind of uh, know what's going on. We're going to do a background. So, what do we know about the church in Rome? What do we know about where Paul was when he wrote this? Uh, why did he write it? And we'll look at various texts that give us. Uh, an understanding of um, of all that. Uh, then uh, in week three and four, we've already named some of these, but we're going to dive into some of the problems in uh, Romans 1, 18 through 32. And I named the wrath thing and the kindness thing and some of so, uh, um uh, Don named like uh, the, the the clobber text for LGBTQ people. Uh, we have who's speaking, right? Uh, is it Paul? Is it all Jews? Is it somebody else? How do we know? So we'll we'll talk about that. Then we'll talk about in week five uh, a proposed solution to those problems. So then I'll uh, I'll draw on uh, some work of. I'll, I'll show you some of the things I'm drawing on here as we close. Um, then, then on uh, week five or six, we'll have a convo about the solution. So I want to present the solution as like, a, here's another way to think about this. And I want to give it a week to settle. And then I want to come back and chat about what does this drum up for us? Does this solution create other problems? Right? What are the implications of this solution, et cetera? Right? It's all that. Um... Then we'll talk in week seven about what does this mean for um, some of the things you guys have already brought up. So what does this mean about LGBTQ stuff? Does it, does it, I don't think we're going to answer that question in half of a class, but how, how does this understanding of this text and the things we've used to uncover what's going on here, how does that change the way then that we take this text and apply it to gay people today? Does it at all? We'll talk about that. What does it mean for Jewish people? <clears throat> right? And then what does it mean for the gospel? Which um, already Marissa's mentioned, um, and you've mentioned Isaiah and a, a number of other people. How, how do we put the gospel together uh, differently? Um, and then if we have a week eight with your question marks, we'll see how long it takes us to do this. Then we'll then we'll do a summary. Meaning, I'm going to propose a way. I, I'll, I'll just give you right now, like what I'm going to propose. I think I think Paul is dealing with teachers who go to churches and teach things he doesn't like. In some, in one letter, he talks. He says, "I wish they would just go ahead and cut off their marriage cut." Remember that? Uh, he look out for the dogs. He says in another one. I think Paul has a in any time he's talking about these people, we see the same stuff. From Romans 1 18 to 32, 
we, we are in, in Romans 2 and 3. We see circumcision. We see works of the law. I think Paul is dealing with either Jewish converts to Jesus or Jewish people that are that are teaching things that compromise his gospel, and he's directly responding to them. So I want to propose he's speaking to a subset of Jewish people, not all Jews. Changes then maybe, maybe we can just get rid of uh, stereotypes that do unhelpful work. So I'm going to walk us through how we can know that background, uh, word meanings. Like I already mentioned the circumcision thing. So we'll get more to that. Yeah, we'll get more to that. And then talk through some like rhetorical cues in the text. There's little, there's apostrophes and diaphragmias and gars and all this stuff that indicates to ancient readers, Paul is in a diatribe with somebody. <clears throat> Paul's speaking here. Paul's, Paul's embodying another speech here. And then we'll see what this reveals for us and what challenges this creates for us. Like, is this a, what, what's the messiness around this proposed solution? So that's the work we're gonna do. And in doing that work, we'll go through backgrounds, word meanings, socio-rhetorical stuff. We'll pull together theology from Paul's other writings to figure out how this makes sense and fits here. We'll talk about the gospel, we'll talk about Judaism, we'll talk about LGBTQ stuff, etc. So I thought this is a better way to talk about all these things in a, in, in a, in a, in a closed pericope versus just talking about them in a random way. Okay. Let me pray for us. Um, God, we thank you for your word and that um, that you're always, 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 always working um, in ways that transcend our understanding, that you are not captive to or curtailed by our cognitive categories, our conceptual architecture, that you that you are love and that your love is sovereign and that you always are accommodating to our understandings. So uh, be with us, we pray, as we move from this into word and sacrament and also uh, help us become more faithful, more loving, uh, and more uh, in love with your revelation, your insp inspired scriptures as we do this together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>